Okay, well, uh, like I said, my name is Kotz. Welcome to our Christmas Eve service. Um, in case you don't know who I am, um, I'm the teaching pastor here, and I'm a bit of a nerd. So um, you're going to find out, yeah, yay, two hips for nerds, yeah. Um, so you're going to find out real quickly that I'm very cognitive, like I think a lot of things through, and today's sermon might require you to put on your thinking caps, but I'll do my best to bring it to the heart, okay, because that's what Christmas is about, warm feelings. All right, okay, everybody good? Okay. Well, um, today I wanted to uh, explore this very, very important question when it comes to Christmas, okay, and that is this. What is the deal with Christmas? Like, why is this so special? If you've been with us for the past few years, you also know that I like, I like to talk a lot about how Christmas isn't really December 25th, that Jesus wasn't, nothing in the Bible is set, mentions that Jesus was actually born on, in the wintertime. As a matter of fact, it's definitely not the wintertime because shepherds would not be outdoors t- tending their sheep in the coldest time of the year. So we don't know exactly when Jesus was born. Uh, here's a bit of trivia. Um, at one point in history, Christians used to think that Christmas was January 6th. Who knew? Yeah, right, I know. So just letting you know, like, it's been cemented in culture, but historically it's never been cemented. Anyways, that has nothing to do with it. But the question is, what is the big deal, right? What is the big deal with Christmas? Like, yay, and I think, by, by the way, when we start to get familiar, too familiar with the story about Christmas, we start to forget the significance of the, of the meaning of the story, right? But for some reason, for 2,000 years, it wasn't like that. For 2,000 years, people would tell this story and they knew exactly what the significance was and they wanted to hear the story over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, there's four biographies of Jesus in the Bible, okay, and two of the writers decided to record for us what that, the, the birth story was and both of them cover a different aspect of the story of the birth of Jesus. And so the fact that at least two out of the four authors decided to write down, record for us the birth of Jesus, means that there's a big deal about it, that it it meant a lot to these people. So today what I'm going to do is we're going to be exploring why Christmas was a big deal to the people who first heard this story and why it was passed on from generation to generation until it reached us. Does that sound good? But in order to do that, we have to put our minds and our hearts, our ears, our eyes, our everything in the perspective of the people who heard it first. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through some stories that you probably heard of in the Bible, and you're going to wonder, what does this have to do with Christmas? So first, we're going to talk about the Garden of Eden story. You're like, what? Excuse me? I came here to hear about the Garden of Eden? Oh, no, that's not all. You're also going to be learning, hearing the story about the Noah's flood story. You're like, what does that have to do with stockings and chimneys? Nothing. And next, then we're gonna, after that, we're going to talk about the Mountain of Sinai. Yeah, we're in the book of Exodus, folks, okay? And then when, right when you think like, okay, now this is getting way too boring for a Christmas sermon, well, we're going to top that with the Tabernacle and Temple. And then finally, if you make it through there and still awake, we'll get to the Nativity story. Okay, and, and I'll do my best to keep it entertaining, and I'll do my best to make sure that you guys are following along uh, the train of thought of the people who first heard about the Christmas story, okay? Because all these stories have something in common. As a matter of fact, I might get to like halfway through the story, like halfway through this list, and you're going to be like, oh, I get it, Kotz. I think I know where you're going with this. Don't spoil it for the people around you, okay? Because we're going to get to it. Okay, so let's start with the first one, the Garden of Eden story. Okay, so if you guys know the Garden of Eden story, God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. That's chapter one of Genesis. Then the second chapter of Genesis, God, well, the author of Genesis retells the story from a different perspective. 
And the way that he tells his story, whoever wrote this, um, does it in a very interesting way. So I'm gonna go over this and, and I highlighted some important words for you guys, so you know, try to pay attention to those things. So here we go. This is chapter two, verse eight of Genesis. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. Now pay attention here because we often talk about the garden of Eden, right? But the truth here is that the garden and the Eden are not the same thing. Okay, there's an Eden, and inside of Eden, there's a garden. Okay, so the garden of Eden is inside of Eden, but Eden is not the garden. Are you guys following? <laughs> I know, already you're like, this is Christmas, yeah, okay. And the, okay, and there he put the man he had formed. So he created Eden, and then inside of that he created garden, and he created humanity, and then he put them in the garden, right? So there's an inside and an outside into this, in this story. Are you guys following so far? Okay, you're just being nice by saying yes, but I'll take it. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. So now we have a bunch of trees in this garden. Next verse. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, if you grew up in Sunday school and you had the flannel graphs or whatever you guys used, right? There's probably like a flat ground and in that flat ground there's like, um, the tree that sticks up to the felt for some magical reason, and they have another one, and this, this is a tree of life, this is a tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um, let's erase that from our brains because that's not what it looked like. The tree of life is this huge tree in the very middle of the garden. It was so big that it was taller than the mountains around it. That's like the image that they're painting here, okay? And then there's many, many small trees around it, and one of them happened to be the tree of knowledge and good and evil. Okay, so that's also the image that I want you to have in your mind here. Next. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden, and from there it was separated into four headwaters. And then it tells you what the four rivers went to. One went to was the, was it flowed to Gihon, and the other went to Pishon. And you know, there's all these different places that you don't need to know right now. But the image here is is really interesting because when it comes to water flow, usually it flows from the higher end to the lower end, right? The water does not go up the hill, and so for that reason, people believe that the garden that was in Eden was actually a mountain. So here's a diagram. So if this is Eden, I know, artistically pleasing to the eye. Okay, next slide. The garden is the top part of the mountain of Eden, okay? And in the middle of that, we have this tree. And the closer you are, the higher you, up the t- or you are up this mountain, the closer you are to this presence of God. This is the, pa- the picture that they're trying to paint for us in Genesis chapter two. So. This is what you need to know about the Garden of Eden story, okay? The garden was an ideal place where God and people dwelt together, okay? And in today's terminology, we call that heaven on earth. Humanity and people together, and they're having a great time. Now, this is the part where I need your participation, okay? Now close your eyes. I want you to imagine that you are Adam or Eve, and you're looking around, you're in the garden, What do you see? You probably see the tree that's really big. It's lit up because it's the brightest tree in the the garden. You probably see the animals that are walking around. What do you smell? Do you smell the grass? Do you smell the animals? What do you hear? Do you hear the water flowing out of the tree to the rest of the world? Maybe you hear the cows or you hear the birds. Or as you walk through the garden, you feel the grass on your toes. 
Now, what are you feeling? Knowing that there's no evil in this world, there's no injustice, everybody's treated equal. You don't have to worry about the animals attacking you because there's peace. Okay, let's open our eyes. I want you to remember what you felt there because we're gonna come back to that again, okay? Now, the story moves on and eventually, Adam and Eve decide that they're gonna rebel against God and said, hey, you know, I know you created this paradise for us, but we could do better, you know? And so they basically said, God, you're cut off from us, and they do their own thing, and then as they're doing these things that they're not supposed to do, curse enters the world, and little by little, they start to fall apart. And now, one of the things that happens to them is that, that they're given this curse that says, hey, Adam, you know, you were created from dirt, and now you're a human being. Now you're gonna be cursed to work the ground that you came from. You're gonna work really hard to make sense of the work that you do into the ground, and it's not gonna give back to you what, what you put into it. And it's like, and woman, your curse is what's supposed to give you life, what's supposed to bring you joy may also be a painful thing because in childbearing, you will experience pain, right? And then he talks about this whole hierarchy thing too. Up until now, in paradise, man and woman is supposed to be equal, but guess what's gonna happen? Because of this curse, there's gonna be this competition to see who lords over who. And so he said, this curse is gonna last forever. But God has compassion. He's like, We're, but that, that, that would totally be bad if you had to do this for the rest of your life. So this is what the Lord said in chapter three. He said, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. He's like, we need to cut this guy off from the tree of life because if they keep eating from the tree of life, they will have eternal life. But eternal life means eternal curse, right? And nobody deserves to be under a curse forever, right? So what does God do about it? Next verse, he says, so the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. It's like, you cannot come in here and have access to this tree because this tree, it's gonna hurt you. Yes, before sin into the world, this tree gave you life. Now this tree is actually a form of a curse because you could live forever, that's great. But if you live forever in pain, that's not great, right? And it says, after he drove the man out, he placed out, he kicked them out to the east side of the Garden of Eden and he put there a cherubim, which is a type of angel, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. If you wanna get back in here, you're gonna to have to get past that angel with the, the, the flaming swords. That's how much God has compassion. He's like, I don't want you to live forever with the curse, so I'm gonna make sure you don't have access back into that tree. So, what are the key terms that we should take away from the Garden of Eden story? Well, in the Garden of Eden, we have a wilderness, meaning it's an unkempt type of world, so sometimes deserts are called wildernesses, but also, a bunch of plants and shrubs and stuff like that. It's also called a wilderness. So there's a wilderness, and in that wilderness we have a tree, okay? And that tree gave life, and when they got kicked out, they were kicked out, and there was an angel that was there making sure they didn't come back in. And one of the main features of this story is that they were with God, right? Until they cut God off. So that is the Garden of Eden story, and you're still wondering, what does this have to do with Christmas? It has everything to do with Christmas. Actually, it has everything to do with the Bible, but next slide. Okay, so that's the Garden of Eden. Next, we're gonna talk about Noah's flood. Noah's flood, you guys probably know this story too from Sunday school, right? The, by the way, the, the, the Noah's flood story takes place a few generations after the Adam and Eve story. And in this story, we have Noah and his family who's found to be righteous in the eyes of God, and the rest of the world is just going 
really bad, right? So God's like, I'm gonna flood the earth, we're gonna start all over, start from square one again. And as he's doing that, the boat that they're on that has all these animals on it, they stop, and it turns out they actually stopped on top of a mountain called Mount Ararat, and the water started to recede, and God told them to stay in the boat until it's safe to come out. This is that story right here. The water receded steadily from the earth, and the earth, and the end of the uh, at the end of 150 days, the water had gone down. So, by the way, in total, these guys have been in this boat for at least a year. So that's a long time. Next, next verse. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountain of Ararat. So that's the name of the mountain here. And the waters continued to recede until the 10th month. And on the first day of the 10th month, the top of the mountains became visible. So now they're on the boat. The water starts to recede. They're still on top of the boat, on top of Mount Ararat. And they're, now they're starting to see the peaks of the other mountains around them. And right, okay, now here is a diagram of how that might have happened. Okay, so here, this is the wilderness. Remember, there was water, and now it's probably still wet, okay, but there's no organized garden. It's just like a bunch of shrubs and probably dirt and mud and all that kind of stuff. Wilderness. And on this wilderness, we have Mount Ararat right here, okay? And on top of Mount Ararat, we have this ark. Now, if this diagram looks familiar, it's supposed to, okay, because it's a callback to Genesis. And, And eventually, no one is found. He comes out of the ark with the animals, and when he comes out, you know what he does? What, it, what the first thing he does is? Does he throw a party? No. What does he do? Look, look at this verse right here. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. Interesting. Why does he plant a vineyard? Because in Noah's mind, and by the way, Noah was still alive when Adam was really, really old. I'm sure he heard stories from his great, 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 great grandfather saying, oh yeah, when I was your age, we used to be walking side to side with God until your great, 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 great grandmother messed it all up for us. You know, like, I'm sure they were having these conversations. It's like, oh, there's this great tree that gave us life and there's fruit everywhere. We can eat from any tree, but we can't eat from that tree over there. And now we're kicked out because, and there's an angel guarding the way back in. So I'm sure he heard these stories. So once he realized that they were restarting the whole earth, I'm sure Noah at this point was like, wow, are we back to Adam and Eve type of conditions? Are we back in paradise? So he plants a vineyard because he wanted to grow a tree. This is what the author is implying here. And so as he's doing this, right, he grows it, grows it, grows it, and then he has grapes and he takes the grapes and he he makes wine out of it and he drinks it and then he takes all of his clothes and he falls asleep naked, drunk. Why does he do that? Because his ancestors, when they were in the garden, they were also naked. So this is him trying to get back at the garden conditions, right? But instead he gets drunk because he eats of the fruit, or in this case he drinks of the fruit and brings a curse upon his family. History repeating itself, right? So in this story, I don't like, are you guys following? Am I being too nerdy here? Okay, okay, so. Let's stop right here, now close your eyes again, and let's think about it. You just came off the ark. You planted a vineyard. You're looking around, what do you see? Maybe you look up the mountain and you see the boat that you were in once, and you're like, God protected us for the entire year that we were, the whole world was a flood. You're probably seeing grass grow here and there. You're looking at your vineyard, looking at how beautiful the grapes look. What do you hear? What do you smell? Maybe you smell the moist air. The humidity is probably really high at this point. Maybe you smell a little bit of mold here and there. 
What do you feel? Like a fresh start. And if that feeling is similar to the feeling that you had at the middle of the Adam and Eve story, it's supposed to be that way. Okay, you can open your eyes. So Noah's flood, how can we summarize this? Well, in the list, it actually checks off three of the four. There's a wilderness, there's a tree, there's no mention of angels here, but there is this idea that now they are with God again, right? So what was Noah trying to do here? Noah was trying to reclaim heaven on earth. He's like, hey, this is our chance. This is the generation. We are going to be the ones that get to go back to the Eden-like conditions. And it turns out they didn't. Okay, so let's look at the list again. We just talked about Noah's flood. Again, what does this have to do with Christmas? You'll find out soon. Okay, let's move on to the mountain of Sinai. Okay, in this story, there's a bunch of Israelites who are now slaves in Egypt. Okay, and God calls Moses to go and, and rescue these people out of Egypt. But before he does that, right, God has to get Moses' attention. And at this point in his life, he used to live in Egypt, but now he's living outside of Egypt because he's a fugitive. And he's like hanging out at the foot of this mountain. And then all of a sudden, he's, he's taking care of sheep, and one of the sheep takes off. So he chases after the sheep. And when he goes up this mountain, he notices that there is this burning bush. And when he sees this burning bush, he stops to check it out. And then he has this God encounter. Let's take a look at that story. This is Exodus chapter three. Now Moses was tending the flock, animals, hmm, in a mountain, hmm, okay, of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the, hmm, wilderness? Wilderness, and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb has another name, by the way, and that name is Sinai. Horeb and Sinai, same mountain. Okay, next. There the angel of the Lord, there's an angel in this story, appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. The Hebrew word for bush here is the same as the word for tree. Moses saw that though uh, the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. What a miracle, right? Then, okay, this is the, pe- no, no, oh, don't go yet. That's like a spoiler. Okay, so, so Moses at this point is like, okay, uh, I guess you got my attention, God. What do you want me to do? It's like, I want you to go to Egypt. Rescue my people, let my people go, Moses, you know, and then bring them out and you set the prisoners free. I could do that. Well, there's a lot of back and forth saying I can't do it, but eventually he could do it. So he sends the 10 plagues, he brings out the people, and Moses is like, yay, slaves are free. Where should we go now? Moses has no idea. So he's like, you know what? I'll take you to the mountain that I had an experience with God. So he leads the thousands of people that came out of Egypt back to Mount Sinai, and then... This is what happens, next verse. This is chapter 19 now. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. So, Moses brings all these people out of Egypt and now they're at the foot of the mountain and he's like, okay God, I brought all these people, all these slaves, they're all out, they're free, thank you, and what do we do now? He's like, well I wanna have a talk with you. So can you come up the mountain? It's like, how high? It's like, well, I'll put a cloud up there when you walk into the cloud, that's where, that's where I'll be. So, diagram time. This is the foot of the mountain, which is the wilderness. They're in a desert right now, right? And then there's a mountain of God called Mount Sinai, or Horeb. And if you go to the very top, God says, this is where I'm gonna be. And he calls this the Holy of Holies. It's the holiest place on the mountain. Okay, let's take another break here. Close your eyes. Imagine you're at the foot of the mountain. What do you see? Do you see the cloud up there? 
Do you see the big mountain? Do you see all the people around you? What do you hear? Do you hear the people murmuring? Do you hear the thunder coming out of the clouds maybe, the lightning, you see it, it's really bright? What do you feel? You must be tired from walking, but you have this feel of excitement that God is with us again, that we are now set free as slaves. We were no, we're no longer slaves because we're not in Egypt anymore. You're discovering how powerful God is and now you're feeling very safe. Okay, you open your eyes. So how will we summarize this? Well, at the mountain, we have a wilderness where the mountain is, and there is a tree, the burning bush, that was lit. There's an angel that they said was in the tree, the angel of the Lord, and they have the sense of being with God. But here's the problem. It's limited to only Moses. Everybody else is terrified. They're like, I, we can't go near that cloud. We're terrified. What is God gonna do to us? So it's limited to just Moses to access this cloud, the Holy of Holies. And so God is confined to this mountain. But then eventually God's like, you know what? I wanna be with my people. Well, how do we do that? We can't bring a cloud down here and pin it down. What are we gonna do? And he's like, well, I have this idea. Okay, so look at this list. We go from Mount Sinai and now we move to the tabernacle or AKA temple. Basically he says, here's the idea. I'm gonna give you instructions on how to make a tent and I will live in that tent that's gonna be pitched in the middle of your camp so I could be with the people. Now, you're wondering, what is a tabernacle? What does this tent look like? Here is a 3D rendering that I found somewhere of what it looks like. These dimensions and everything is given by God to Moses, and as you can see, there's a tabernacle, and there's an inner tent, and if you go in, there's a second room right here with what we call the Ark of the Covenant. Now, we'll talk more about that in a second, okay? Now, there's, why does God give so many weird instructions on how to build this thing? Like, he was almost like obsessed with details. Why? Why, 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 why? Why does God do that? Well, here is a scholar who studied this stuff. This is what he said. He said, entering the tabernacle was supposed to feel like entering a garden. Huh? What, really? The connections to the first and second chapters of Genesis couldn't be more clear. Really? How clear? Next. The tabernacle was a symbol the symbolic recreation of the Garden of Eden where God and humanity once dwelt together. In other words, when you walk into this tent, you're supposed to feel like, oh, I'm back in the garden. How so? Well, remember how we said, what do you hear? What do you smell? What do you see, right? Every sense that we have, every detail that God gives is meant to touch a part of our senses to call us back to the garden. There's incense that God says, you need to burn in, the tent, in this tent. Why? Because it's supposed to smell like what it might have smelled. It might have, he, they, people back then thought the garden smelled sweet. And so they had this incense that's supposed to get, make you feel like, oh, I'm in a room with heavy smoke, because in Genesis chapter two, it says that there was this thick mist that covered the garden, right? So they have a lot of smoke in there, right? And, well, what about the tree? Is there a tree in here? Well, this is the cool part. Look at this. This is God giving us instructions on how to build a candlestick that goes inside of this tent. He says, make a lampstand of pure gold. Hammer out its base and shaft and make its, make its flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms of one piece with them. Like, wait, you want to make a candlestick, like a candle stand, a light stand that looks like a, what? Uh, with flowers and buds and, what? Let's keep reading. Six branches are to extend from the side of this lampstand, three on one side and three on the other. What, what is God doing here? Let's keep reading. 
He says, three cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms are to be one branch, three on the next branch, and the same on all six branches, etc., etc. It goes on and on for chapter and chapter. Like, what is God trying to do here? He is trying to recreate a something that symbolizes the tree of life. And if you want to know what that looks like, here's an artist's rendering of what it might have looked like. And by the way, if you're wondering how tall this thing is, you know, I think a lot of people think like you can hold in a hand like Lumiere and Beauty and the Beast, right? This thing is taller than me. This thing is like, it's probably as tall as Bill probably, right? It's like, it's very, it's very tall. But when you walk into the tent and you smell the incense and you look to the side and you see candles lit up, oils lit up up here, right? And you see this tree that's glowing. It's supposed to bring you back to the garden, or it's supposed to bring you back to the burning bush. It's supposed to bring you back to what Noah is trying to do with the vine and branches. Eventually, this tent, because, you know, you could pack it up and go and set it up again. Eventually, they found a place to live forever, a permanent home. So they took the tabernacle and put cement in it, and I don't cement, like stones and stuff like that, and made a permanent thing called a temple. And this is an artist rendering of what a temple looked like at the top. You see all these decorations here? You know what those are? Vines. And people think that right here, there were golden um, vines wrapped around here to emulate this idea of, of a garden. Do you see what these people are? These guys are obsessed with trying to return to the garden. This is why it's so important, because the garden represents a time when humanity and God were together. Okay, so here's the diagram, because there's a diagram for each of these things. Here's the tabernacle, the outside walls of the tabernacle. And then once you walk in, by the way, in the instructions, it says that you can always enter in from the east. Why is that important? Because Adam and Eve were kicked out and they were sent to the east. So you have to come in the same way that you came in, right? Go come back in the way that you were kicked out. Anyways, okay, and inside, we have another tent that's called the holy place. And inside the holy place, there's a second room back here called the holy of holies. And by the way, there's a curtain here. And guess what design is on the curtain? Angels. And then in the Holy of Holies, we have this little object called the Ark of the Covenant. We don't know exactly what it looks like. We have instructions, okay? And the instruction doesn't tell us exactly how to build it, but people think this is what it looks like. Here's an image of that, okay? Now, if you're wondering, is this where God dwells? Um, yes and no, okay? People believed that this, you, okay, when you look at this, you think box, right? Do you guys think box? Oh, by the way, up here, angels. Um, yes, it's a box but that's not where they believe God lived. They believe this to be the top part, they call this the mercy seat. They believe that this was a throne and that God would sit right on top. And these two angels are right here pointing at the center saying this is where God is. So imagine if you walked into the temple, into the temple or into the tabernacle, peeled, peeled open the curtains and you walked in and you looked at it expecting to see God and you don't see God, you just see these two angels pointing at something that's invisible. Okay, so once again, let's try this. Close your eyes. You are entering the tabernacle. What do you see? You see the vines. You see the trees. What do you smell? You smell the incense, a sweet aroma. What do you hear? Maybe you hear the fire. What do you feel? You feel this closeness to God. What do you see? What do you hear? What do you smell? What do you feel? And if it's similar to the feeling that you might have had when you were at the garden, it was meant to be that way. Okay, so you can open your eyes. So here's the summary of that one, this story. The tabernacle, 
is usually set up in the middle of a desert. It's a wilderness. It's a lit tree, which is the candle stand. We have an angel that's guarding the curtains, and then we have this, ex- this experiential thing where you feel like you're actually with God again. <sighs> Are you catching on the pattern here? The symbolism, whenever they see and feel these symbols, they're brought back to that time when they feel like humanity and God, were, they were the closest. In other words, throughout history, people have been desperately trying to recreate heaven on earth. All these things we talked about throughout Jewish history are all their attempts of trying to get back together with God. Another way of putting this is that they're desperately trying to dwell with God again. This is what they've been doing throughout history. So let's look at that list. That was the tabernacle and temple, and finally we get to the nativity story. Now, I want you to pay attention to how Luke writes this story for us, okay? And there were shepherds, there were animals, living out in the fields nearby. Fields, when you think about Christmas story fields and you think there's this open plain with lots of grass and it's flat, that's not the image that you're supposed to have in your mind. Um, keeping watch over their flocks at night. It's dark. If you wanna know what the, the field of Bethlehem looks like, this is what it looks like. It's a mountain of wilderness, and there's animals. Where have we heard this story before, right? And the angel of the Lord, huh? There's an angel in this story? Yes, there's an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone, so there's light around them, and they were terrified, just like how people were terrified to go up that mountain at Mount Sinai, right? It's a callback to all these stories. Keep going. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Good news, what's the good news here? Well, let's, let's see if they clarify for us what this good news is. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you that you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Whereas when you enter into a tabernacle, what do you find? An empty seat. He says, today, if you were to go to this place in Bethlehem, you're going to find a manger with the Lord in it. You're going to find a baby wrapped in cloths. And so after the angels make the announcement, it says that they all started to praise about how there's this big celebration in the heavens. And then it says, when the angels had left them and gone into the heavens, the shepherds said to one another, hey, maybe we should check this out, right? Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that had happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off, like as you should if you have an angel encounter, right? And found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. What is this image of? You have Mary, Joseph, in the middle you have a baby Jesus. This is a callback to the Ark of the Covenant. Every word that Luke is using in this story is supposed to conjure up in our memories, in our senses, in our smell, what we see in our imaginations, what we hear, because there's animals there, right? It's supposed to bring us back to the story of the garden, the story of Noah's vine, the story of the, 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 the Mount Sinai and also the tabernacle. So in the nativity scene, this is what we see. We see a wilderness, the field in Bethlehem. We see a great light. We see angels and then there's a sense that God is now with us. So this is what Luke is trying to paint for us. He's trying to call us back. Like, this is what we've been wanting all this time. For generation, generation after generation, we've been waiting for something like this and it finally happened. But that's not the extent of, that's not the full extent of the good news because there's more, okay? Now look at the garden, the diagram of the garden. 
Who had access to this tree? Everybody. Let's look at this diagram of the ark. Who had access to this? Well, everybody else was dead, so the only people who had access to this was a family. Let's look at Mount Sinai. Who had access to the Holy of Holies, the cloud up there? Moses, only one person. Next diagram, who had access to the Holy of Holies? There was one priest once a year for a few hours that they were allowed to go in there. But in this Christmas story, who is the one that was granted access to see the baby Jesus? Shepherds. Shepherds were the low people of society, the people who were considered to be unclean, people who were dirty, people who made a lot of mistakes in their lives, people who made poor choices. So what God is saying here, what the angel, what, what Luke is trying to tell us in this story is that it's like, guys, we have access to this Holy of Holies, we have access to the presence of God, but without all these lines around it. Next slide. It's basically just this. Anybody who wants to have an encounter with God can have it now. And when you get to the ark the, 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 of, the, of the covenant, what do you find? Well, you don't find an empty chair. What you find instead is you find a baby, a little baby wrapped in cloth. So again, the point that I want to get across to you is that throughout history, people have been desperately trying to dwell with God again like they used to. So what is the deal with Christmas? Christmas is a celebration of the day God's presence became available to all, to you, no matter how many mistakes you made in life, no matter how bad you feel about yourself, no matter how alone you feel, no matter how successful or a failure you feel, God is available to you. And this is why, for centuries, people sang songs about this night. They they sang this song about how that night was not like any other night. It was actually a holy night. Holy means different from the other nights. Holy night. And they try to describe it as, with as many, many sensory words as possible. It's like, oh, the stars were brightly shining. Right? They use words like, this is what it felt like. This is what I heard. Because they want you to f- remember what it felt like to be in the presence of God who is now available to everybody. And that is the big deal of Christmas. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray.